0: Uh, before we jump on into our usual festivities for the morning, uh, I think on the count of three, we should just shout out a big old praise the Lord for the presence of both Al and Shard this morning, shall we? One, two, three. Praise the Lord. And on the count of three, I had a totally different shout. <laughs> uh, time for Children's Church. Kids, if you want to be released, you may be released. See ya See you, Sawyer. Although I have to say, I was very moved this morning by hearing all the kids sing out loud and strong. That's just such an amazing thing. So we gave you a week's reprieve last week from the uh, apocalyptic revelation. Um, Last week it was great hearing from the Bickfords and all about their upcoming mission commitment to Guinea. Um, Who would have thought teaching sustainable uh, agriculture Um, was such a needed and worthy way of sharing the gospel with a whole group of people. That sounds like an amazing opportunity. We will be considering uh, ongoing financial support for them as we discuss our budget for the next fiscal year. Uh, We also had an update from Caleb about Paidea Christian Academy, the the classical Christian school, which is going to launch here um, in six or seven short weeks. Um, We will also consider mission support for them for next year. Uh, And that also, the school happens to be the subject of our very short business meeting following church today. So as soon as we're done, we're going to take a short couple minutes for those who want to run away and flee. They can do that, and then the rest of you will just have a very short meeting about that. Um, Now, over the last couple of months, it seems like we have individually and collectively been through some very difficult, challenging times. Uh, even with some spending what feels like time in the valley of the shadow of death. There have been some hard things that we've dealt with individually and collectively. Um, we, we've spent time in these lower valley periods of our spiritual journey when we all would much rather spend our time on the mountaintop. We, we think, we have come to believe that's the pinnacle of our spiritual journey. And yet, there's something about those valley periods I ran across this Puritan prayer this last week, not surprisingly, in the book called The Valley of Vision, and this is that prayer I'm going to use to open our time this morning. So listen and pray along with me. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. And that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Amen. That's heavy. So, two weeks back now, Randy covered chapter 10 and and part of 11, which included this interlude period between the 6th and 7th trumpet blast. So we'd gone through the first six trumpet judgments. We discussed how they are very similar in style and tone to the first six seal judgments, which we believe indicates that they're different descriptions of the same events. See, this is the period of interlude here. So then we saw that the placement of the interlude between trumpet 6 and trumpet 7 also it matches exactly the placement of the interlude between seal 6 and seal 7. Almost as though the interlude describes the same time period, but from a slightly different perspective. Now, some of the details of these two interludes are different. Not contradictory, but they share or describe different kinds of things. For example, one of the differences that we saw in this most recent interlude is the introduction of the two witnesses. That was described in chapter 10. The idea of the two witnesses has been another of those really vexing details as people try to understand the book of Revelation. So there are lots of theories, lots of creative ideas as to what or who these two people are and what they represent. And, of course, if you hold to a very literal understanding of the book of Revelation, it makes it all the more challenging because you have to come up with a name, some way to identify these two witnesses and when they show up. But Randy presented, I thought, a very cogent and very logical explanation as to who and what the witnesses are. And it's okay if you hold to a different view of this. We don't think it affects your salvation in any way. But by using Scripture to help guide us, uh, we believe that the two witnesses represent the totality of the church, the full body of believers from all time, represented by two witnesses. That's the metanarrative standpoint. Perhaps it's even as simple as one of the witnesses represents the Old Testament saints and one represents the New Testament saints. I don't know. But all true Jesus followers, we believe, are included in this metaphor. And they're also referred to in that chapter as the two olive trees and the two lampstands. And we know that lampstand has already been used ...to describe the churches in Revelation. So there is some continuity there with the imagery. We're told that these two witnesses had the power of the Holy Spirit working through them. And as a result of their actual witnessing, of their actual Jesus following... ...the witness of these two witnesses proved rather irksome to the unbelievers. People didn't like what they had to say. So much so that the two witnesses were told... ...really, we believe, the faithful followers of Christ they are eventually persecuted and put to death. And remember, the early letters to the churches talked about persecution, ongoing persecution. So these two witnesses uh, became martyrs, which is another recurring theme in Revelation, those who are willing to die for the cause of Christ. And when the witnesses were martyred, the unbelieving world rejoiced. Ha, don't call us sinners anymore. You can't. You're dead. We got you. You can't make us feel bad for our life choices anymore. It says that the earth dwellers were so overjoyed at the death of the church, which is the apparent death, they thought, of faith itself, maybe even the death of God. They paraded the bodies of the dead through the streets. The dwellers of the earth rejoiced over their death. They made Mary and exchanged presents. it says. Now think about that for just a minute. The, the evildoers... are fully convinced that they've won the battle and perhaps the war against God himself and they throw parties and exchange gifts. We think our culture is bad? I mean, how how can it get any worse? We think. Here it is. The dwellers of the earth treat the persecution and death of the saints as though it's Christmas time, exchanging gifts and having parties. Can it get any worse than that? Well, I think To some degree, we're seeing kind of the flip side of that same coin right now in our age, in our culture. Rather than rejoicing over the death of the church by making merry and exchanging presents, the earth dwellers, the unbelievers in our day and age, are currently showing their extreme anger over the recent Dodd ruling by making threats and promising violence and threatening to burn the whole country down. It's the same sentiment, the same worldview, but in an opposite circumstance. Rather than rejoicing over the death of the church, the unbelievers are extremely angry over the apparent life and assumed power of religious people, people of faith. And living through this present circumstance makes it easier for us to see how this particular text can actually happen. But then, even as the partying continued over the apparent death of the church, the two witnesses, the entire Jesus' following body of believers. It says they're given the breath of life. The witnesses are called into his presence. The watching world gasps as these recently dead people are now, have come back to life. They've risen, and the witnesses ascend to heaven in a cloud. Now, from a cultural perspective, the, the church and its followers seem to have been eliminated, and the lost world rejoices, and then everything changes in a heartbeat. And it struck me that this was very, really eerily similar to the death of Jesus himself. Satan and his whole core of useful idiots thought that they had defeated Christ. He was hung on a cross. He was stabbed in the side. He was dead. They stuck him in a tomb and put a big rock in front of him. And for three days, the unbelieving world rejoiced. They partied. There might have been some kind of big satanic ball. I don't know. Maybe they exchanged gifts. But then amidst that revelry, about three days later or so, Jesus arose. The breath of life returned. He was called back and he ascended to heaven and everything changed. That's much like what's described here in chapter 11 with these two witnesses. Isn't that an amazing correlation? And this is not coincidental. In one of the Many, many books we've been forced to read about Revelation. I ran across this quote this week, which I thought was helpful. The book is The Theology of the Book of Revelation by Richard Baucom. It says, John is a prophet himself, with a fresh revelation to communicate. This is that the church is called to participate in Jesus' victory over evil by following the same path that he trod, the path of faithful witness to the truth, even to the point of death. This will be the final conflict of God's people against the powers of this world that oppose God's rule. By this means, faithful witness to the truth, even to the point of death, by this means, truth will prevail over the lies by which evil rules. That pretty well sums up what's happening here. And we've talked about this before, about how the witness of the faithful actually seems to help usher in the end times events. We're taught throughout Scripture that we are to share in the life and death of Christ. We're going to share in his suffering. We may even share in his martyrdom. And that willingness to be martyred, whether we actually are or not, that willingness helps to shine a light on the gospel. This is the cause for which we are willing to die. And even if we are martyred, we share in his resurrection. We'll share in eternity with him. This is the picture that's being spelled out here in these chapters. The earth dwellers thought they defeated God, they thought they defeated Jesus, they thought they defeated the church, and they were wrong. The breath of God entered the witnesses, they stood on their feet, and people were afraid. And then it says, at the end of that Randy section two weeks ago, at that same hour there was a great earthquake, a tenth of the city fell, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God. That does not mean that they repented and worshipped him, It means they recognized his power and they were afraid. And that's how—that's the conclusion to the end of the interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet. As well as it says, the end of the second of three woes. And I thought it was important for us to consider that context as we move ahead now and get into the actual seventh trumpet sound. So we've, we've reset the stage. We'll pick it up in chapter 11, starting in verse 15. And it says... Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So let's pause here for just a minute. I'm going to say this again, because I think this is a recurring theme. It seems apparent to us that the seals and the trumpets describe the same events, but from different perspectives. And we'll see how this plays out here this morning. So here we are, here are the seals... And here is the result in the trumpets. So we had six sealed judgments, and then there was an interlude, followed by an audible signal from heaven. We had six trumpet judgments, and an interlude, followed by an audible signal from heaven. They're the same, except where they're different. I mean, with the seals, it says there was a period of silence. But that was followed by people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, crying out with a loud voice, "'Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb.'" So there was a period of silence, followed by a period of loud worship. And here at the end of the interlude at the seventh trumpet blast, we're told that heaven is filled with loud voices, saying, "'The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever.'" Now, there are some apparent differences, but you can't deny there are some similarities here also. And as far as we know, because it's just not spelled out explicitly, maybe the voices that we're hearing in Trumpet 7, maybe they come after a period of silence. We're just not told that part. However that works out, both are worshipful proclamations that describe the reign and rule of God and his Christ. So, these are not necessarily contradictory. They're just focusing on different parts of the story. And what story are they telling? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. The voices are announcing a transition, a change has occurred. The world is under new management. There's a distinction being drawn here between the kingdom of the world, the old management, and the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, the new management, and it's setting up kind of a compare and contrast situation, which will come into play over the next several chapters. But notice the tense here. The kingdom has become. This suggests that whatever this change is, this change in management, it is now a fait accompli. It's a done deal. It has occurred. Which is interesting because if we follow the exact literal linear timeline here, the seventh trumpet has just been sounded and nothing else has happened yet, at least so we're told. Nothing else has been explained. And yet the reign and the rule of the world is described as having changed hands. The final judgment hasn't yet occurred. Jesus, according to this plot line, hasn't come back on the white horse and defeated the enemy yet. I mean, this this description here is challenging to a literal linear understanding of end-time events. But fortunately, that's not our approach, so it's not much of a challenge for us. We're not bothered by this. We believe we're, what we're being shown here is the order of the visions, not necessarily the order of events. So to help us try to understand Scripture With the assistance of other scripture, we go back just a chapter and see, in chapter 10, verse 7, it says, But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Just as he announced to his servants the prophets. And one way to read this is that the seventh trumpet blast marks the end of judgment, not the beginning of it. This signals the end of events. It announces completion. So if the trumpet blast really announces that the final judgment and all those other details which we haven't even gotten into yet, if all that has, has now occurred, verse 15 makes sense. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of heaven. It also makes more sense when we get to the next verses. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So this scene seems to suggest that God's redemptive plan has now come to fruition. The elders fell on their faces and worshiped God. They say, you have taken your power the nations raged. That's all past tense. The, the, this is something of a celebration that's being described here. That The, the 24 elders are worshipping that these events have taken place and God is now ruling forever and ever. Now just the introduction of the 24 elders ought to remind us of way back in chapter 4 when we're told that the elders also fell down before the throne. Let's take a look at that. The 24 elders fall down before him who was seated on the throne And worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, the scene in chapter 4 takes place just before Jesus has even received the scroll. So, this is before the seals, before the trumpets. However, you view that timeline, this all happens before Jesus even has the scroll. So, this goes way back. And I don't think, as the, as the elders fell down and worshipped and said these things, I don't think they knew the details or the timeline yet. All they knew for sure was that Jesus would come back. God would be the ultimate victor. And so they worshipped his forever rule preemptively. They knew it was going to happen. But here in chapter 11, we see again these same 24 elders falling on their faces before God and saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, for you have begun to reign. Now I think this is just an interesting little bit of translation here. Different versions translate this differently. King James uh, does much the same here. Uh, the New King James is a little different. But this phrase, Lord God Almighty, really jumped out at me. It's that, that phrase, that combination in, those, in that order is only used twice in the ESV translation. There are lots of uses of Lord God, the Almighty. Uh, Lord Almighty, God of Israel. Lots of combinations of, of, of other ways of, you, uh, of saying that, but only twice are they all grouped together in this order. And both of those times are in Revelation 4 and Revelation 11. 4.8 says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And our text today says, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Both texts are describing these scenes of heavenly worship. Both texts use this Lord God Almighty in a way that amounts to this this superlative recognition of God. The word translated Lord means master, sovereign, one deserving respect. God is the the kind of the generic word for supreme divinity. It it can also refer to the Godhead of the Trinity. And Almighty means omnipotent. So when it's grouped together here, Lord God Almighty, you get this sense of this encompasses all of his traits, all of his attributes. It's almost as though the phrase here, Lord God Almighty, serves as a giant exclamation point as the center of worship. And what's also interesting is... remember in chapter 4 it says, Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. In Revelation 11 it says, who is and who was. They left out who is to come. Why? Well, it goes on to say who is to come for you have taken power and begun to reign. The is-to-come part is no longer future. It is now. It was a promise then. It was something to look forward to back in chapter 4. This fantastic culmination of God's long and patient plan for humanity. And now in chapter 11, it is a promise realized. God has taken power and is now reigning. Again, this proves challenging to a literal timeline approach to the book. God has begun to reign, it says, and we're only halfway through the book of Revelation. So while the elders are absolutely overjoyed at this turn of events, they fell down and worshiped. Not everybody was as joyful. 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged. The nations just refers to all of those who have rejected the call of God. The earth dwellers, as they're called in other places. The, all of these people who have ignored the signs uh, from the seals, they, they've ignored the, the warnings from the trumpet blasts, the, the ones who have ignored the call to repentance over and over and over. And not only did they reject God, but they actively warred and railed against him. They raged. People were angry. And as the nations raged, I can only assume it was, it was due to what they perceive as the, you know, the supposed unfairness of it all. I mean, why should we have to do things the way God wants us to do them? Why can't we just live the way we want to? We can decide for ourselves better than some invisible sky fairy. We don't need any external God. We can be our own. It is the age-old temptation. You know, I, I, I found this interesting as I was going through this. The, the Philippians 2 came to mind, and I thought, so Philippians, this letter written to the church And it says in chapter 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, if Christ followers, if the church has to be reminded about this, how much more tempting is it for Christ deniers to lapse into some form of self-worship? And I think the truth is, Most people want to be God. We want to live the way we want to live, even if that's an open defiance to God. And then that self-worship turns to anger towards God because at some level we know we're opposing him. At, At some level we know we're doing something we should not be doing. Even when people deny God exists, this has always amazed me, Quite a few atheists have fit this category over the years. Even when people deny God exists, they manage to harbor anger and resentment towards him. We don't want to believe in God in any area of our life, but when something bad happens, we blame God for it. So we don't want to think about We don't want to talk about We don't want to deal with God. We want to be our own idol. We want to be the sinner, the, the, the controller, the mandator. We want to have ultimate control over us and then probably some of the people around us as well. It would just make things easier if we could control. So we try to grasp equality with God even as we deny him. And so how that works out I think practically is we have a, an awful lot of people who would for example, um, acknowledge that Jesus was a great teacher. And so we'll pick and choose the things about Jesus' teaching that we agree with, the things that suit us, so that we can, we can create him into our own image of what God is like. We can leave out all the other stuff that we disagree with. All over social media, in the last week or so since the uh, Dodd ruling, I've read over and over and over people referring to, well, my God would do this, or my God would never do that. you may have the wrong God. So we want to make our own w- rules and, 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 and then we can reject God's, I think, predetermined genetic blueprint for our gender, for example. And we can decide our own. We can even be creative, which is a godlike attribute to create. and We can create a whole host of other genders that we can identify with. Or, or we want to be the arbiters of life and death even what constitutes life and when, we get to decide. We have all kinds of ways that we strive to be equal with God or to be God. And in so doing, they, the nations, the rejecters of God, they ignore all of the clearly spelled out consequences for living opposed to God's will. They raged against him. And unfortunately for them, The nation's rage or their wrath towards God is nothing compared to God's eventual wrath towards them. Which he's warned us about repeatedly. We are not almighty, but he is. Romans, we all know this text. It says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That is never so powerful as when you read Revelation 1st. And then go back and look at this. And again, I, I think this this is one of those texts for me that, that provides the, the best and only real explanation for the world as it currently exists. This explains much of what we're seeing in our culture. On the whole, people reject the truth of God, even though He's made himself knowable, in a variety of ways, we're told. And so we end up worshiping anything else, everything else, but it always kind of comes back to us. We want to be the center of worship. And there are several ways here that we're told that God, that we will answer for our decisions and lifestyles. It says God's wrath has been revealed; He's shown it to us. Which made me wonder if this is a reference to the cycles of judgments, the wrath of God that's been revealed. Is this some maybe maybe a, a, a reference to sealed judgments or trumpet judgments, things that we've experienced in humanity that could be a sign of God's wrath for us? But God, and his will for man, has been made known to us. It's been made plain, it says. It's been made so plain that if we reject him, we have nobody to blame. It's our own fault. We are without excuse. And for failing to honor God, our foolish hearts become darkened, and we continue to move farther and farther away from him. The text goes on to say, a few verses later, that we would rather worship God's creation than God himself. And by creation, more often than not, it means me. It means us. So this transition from kingdom of the world to kingdom of the Lord brings with it consequences. This message is biblically consistent. It brings consequences. In fact, this whole series of judgments, the seals and the, the trumpets and the, and the bowls, they are consequences for rejecting God and his, and his Christ. And the consequences are laid out here in our text. Verse 18 says, the dead will be judged. And this is a reference to those who are spiritually dead. They will be judged for their actions. And this is a foreshadow of what's to come when we get to chapter 20, when we get a view of the final judgment. The destroyers of the earth will themselves be destroyed. Now, the context here, I think, indicates that the destroyers of the earth, we're not talking about polluters. We're not talking about litterers. We're not talking about flatulent cow ranchers. That's not the destroying of the earth that we're talking about, but it's referring to those who destroy or those who attempt to destroy God's people. So this is not directed to the martyrs, but to the martyrers. There's similar imagery in Jeremiah. Jeremiah sharing a a prophecy against Babylon who has taken Israel captive. And Jeremiah says... Behold I am against you O destroying mountain and that destroying mountain is Babylon. Babylon's the destroyer. It says behold I am against you O destroying mountain which destroys the whole earth. So it's the same kind of imagery. The destroying is against the people. Same principle here. Those who opposed, who are opposed and try to destroy God, his Christ and the people of God will themselves be destroyed. So again, the wrath of God against the earth dwellers is far more damaging than their rage and wrath against God himself. Now, conversely, we see in these verses that the servants, the saints, the prophets, they're all going to be rewarded. Now, just through these couple of verses alone, 18 and 19 especially, we get a sense of what seems like finality here. We're being shown that there's ultimate judgment and ultimate reward spelled out in these verses. It starts to sound as for all the world as though Jesus has come back and, and these things have all been set right and we haven't even gotten to the bold judgments yet. This still makes it a challenge for a literal understanding of the book. And if there's any question about where we are in a timeline here, I think verse 19 kind of cinches it. It says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So we get a picture here of God in his temple. He he is revealing to everyone his full glory. This certainly seems to indicate that this is after the time of Jesus' triumphant, victorious return. I mean, it, it mentions the ark here. Just the mention of the ark is pretty telling. In the Old Testament, the Ark was always set up in the Holy of Holies. It, it was the, the inner sanctum of the temple. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies and see the Ark, and, and then only one day a year. The Day of Atonement. When the priest would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, he would ensure the forgiveness of sins for another year for the people. So this starts to sound like this ultimate and final day of judgment and atonement. The temple is open. The ark is exposed for all to see. No more sacrifices are required. No more separation between a holy God and his less than holy people. God's plan of redemption is complete. This describes the establishment of his forever kingdom. And if there's any remaining doubt at this point, it goes on to say, and then there are flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail. Those are always biblical indicators of the presence of God. So this, this seems to read very much like the end of the story. The promise has been fulfilled. The future is now. You have begun to reign. So Jesus must have triumphantly returned by now. God is on his throne. All of heaven is worshiping. And yet we have 11 more chapters. Now, I clearly don't know much of anything. And I certainly can't know this for sure. But I suspect that John's repeated visions, which we think tell the same story, but from different perspectives, he was given all of these different visions. It was was intended to help us understand better it was intended to help us understand this this vision and this in time it was intended to help us make more sense of all of this to help us understand the ages and the times from from different perspectives to help us find our place in the storyline to give us a fuller picture of what's happening on both a physical level and a spiritual level i think that was the intent of all these different visions all telling a similar story and this is not unusual in scripture In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, Jesus uses six different parables, all in a row, six different parables to describe the kingdom of heaven. And they all start with, the kingdom of heaven is like hidden treasure, pearl of great price, a mustard seed. They all start the same. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like, and they're all different, but they're all the same. And those were used to try to give us a, a fuller picture of the kingdom of heaven to help the help the hearers better understand the point that Jesus was trying to convey. And in some ways, I feel like we've made the message of Revelation more complicated than it needs to be by bringing in our pre-existing view of what it says and making the text fit what we think rather than letting the text determine how we see it, how we understand it. I mean, starting with the very first chapters, we're told as followers of Christ, we're called to persevere through trials and temptations of the world that is under the influence of the enemy of God. Persevere. We're called to endure persecution and suffering that may well come our way as a result of us being Christ's followers. And we're called to overcome the world. Just as Jesus did. We're following that path. But then it reminds us that this is not just about us either. We're also reminded of the power of our witness. How Christ is waiting for that last soul to be converted to faith. And how does faith come? By hearing. It's our job to tell it. We see the power of our witnessing that's parabolized in the two witnesses that we saw two weeks ago. These two witnesses, representing the body of Christ, they were so effective, they were so convicting in their witness, the Holy Spirit was so powerfully working through them that they had to be killed. But then they were raised from death for eternity. This is a pretty compelling story. And we're seeing it from different angles and different perspectives. And next week it's going to take a bit of a turn again. John's vision begins to give us more of an understanding on what is occurring on a more spiritual plane and not just this physical plane that we've been talking about thus far. We're going to be shown, we're going to be told who it is or what it is that we're actually battling. So the ongoing challenge for us through this is not, for, not just for us to maintain our witness, it's not just for us to, to stand firm in our faith, It's not just for us to continue to walk in a worthy manner, but we are called to share our faith. We are called to be faithful witnesses. We're called to share the good news of the gospel while also pointing out there's some bad news on the other side of it. Grace never sounds so good until after you talk about the consequence of sin. We have a hard time doing that. So we are to believe. We are to continue to grow. We're continue to to continue to stand firm in our faith, but we're called to share our faith. How are we doing at that? I pray we get better. Let's pray. Father God, we continue to marvel at what we read here, um, not just in Revelation, but in all of Scripture. We continue to see all these threads that have been woven over centuries, and how they all fit together to, to tell this same story. To tell about God's love for His creation. And how over and over we reject Him, and He continues to love us. He continues to try to call us, to, to draw us. He continues to show us that He is the only way to reward in eternity. He's the only way to heaven. Through the Son, through Jesus, Lord, we can find grace and forgiveness and an eternity, worshiping God in heaven. Lord, but we are also aware that there are consequences if we don't. And I pray that for, for those of us here who, who consider ourselves Christ followers, Lord, that we would continue to grow in our faith. We would continue to study. We would continue to grow, uh, to become more Christ-like on our process of sanctification. But we also stay focused on sharing that good news with others around us. Even if we have to share the the heavy things like the consequences. Even if we have to have hard discussions with people about life and life choices. and Lord, I, I pray that you give us courage, but I also pray that you help us hear the voice of the Spirit working through us. Lord, it's not just our words. It's what the Holy Spirit wants to say through us to the people that we're engaged with. So I pray that we have open hearts and open minds to hear that prompting to hear those words and then give us the courage to follow through. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.